Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you a bonus episode of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. More like a mini episode because this is completely. Unexpected, wasn't planning to do this, but I was so struck by the monumental occasion that is today that I could not wait to get my thoughts out into the ether and to the ears of the awaiting public. But after 30 plus years, the trilogy is complete. I just saw Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, let me preface uh, before we get rolling into the the slime covered uh, narrative I'm about to lay out for you but spoilers abounding so if you have not seen afterlife hop off go watch it and then pick this up later on I don't want you to be spoiled in the least um let me lay a little more groundwork uh, I was born in 1984 May 14th 1984 to be exact so I was born the same year that the original film came out. Now, for those of you that have been living under a rock, Ghostbusters is my all-time favorite film. Not even close. Number two, you know, so far behind that Ghostbusters might as well take up the first five spots. It just it means that much to me. And I've often made the joke that I love the worst aspects of Ghostbusters more than you love your favorite thing and, you know, there's some hyper uh, hy- uh, hyperbole in, in that statement, but by and large, I love Ghostbusters. But I'm probably what you would consider a second-generation fan, uh, because Ghostbusters has exist- existed the entire time I've been alive, but it was really, you know, two or three years before I really started finding myself in the position of it being a constant presence in my life. Uh, which first came to fruition with the 1986 Real Ghostbusters series. But that movie, holy crap, that movie. Uh, infamous, uh, perfect on every level. I mean, it's a, it's a movie that works as good today as it did then. It only grows in the things that it's able to accomplish, and it's just damn funny. It's also nice and scary, too, so it blends a lot of the things that I absolutely love. And then you have what I consider one of the more underrated films of all time, and I will defend it to my dying breath because I saw it in the theater July 16th, 1989, Ghostbusters 2. In fact, long-time listener to this podcast will know that I have cited this several times as the two greatest weeks of my childhood because that week, Ghostbusters 2 came out. The next week was Tim Burton's Batman. What a time to be alive as a child. Now, throughout the years, um, it was always just when is Ghostbusters 3 going to happen? Because as a child in the pre-internet days, it was just how could they not make a third movie? I mean, Ghostbusters 2 was a huge success. It had a precipitous drop-off, but it still made a ton of money. But, you know, as the story goes, Bill Murray... Not really crazy about, uh, you know, continuing the series. He had some bad uh, issues on Ghostbusters 2. So the uh, developmental hell that was Ghostbusters 3 has been the bane of my existence. I can tell you a true story. The first time I ever got on the internet, which was back in the 90s, 1997 specifically, the very first thing I did on AskJeeves.com, I believe it was, Ghostbusters 3 News. 
and I came across a story where they were talking about active development, and I got really excited because I'm thinking like, oh man, you know, I'm by the time I'm in high school, there's going to be a new Ghostbusters movie, and it's going to be great. And then it never happened. And those talks have persisted pretty much the entire time. And we got close, and unfortunately Harold Ramis passed away. We did get that excellent video game, which in many ways was the third Ghostbusters movie we always wanted. But we never got it in actual form, and the guys in front of the camera. So, spoilers abounding. Uh, the the most sincere thing I can say about Ghostbusters Afterlife, it's it's not the movie that any of us wanted, but it is the movie that we desperately needed. It's heartfelt. Uh, I mean, basically, it's a Spielberg film. It has that very schmaltzy, heartfelt, uh, you know, stand by me kind of quality to it, and um, and some of that may rub some people the wrong way because it goes so sentimental. Um, and there's certainly some negative things uh, I could say about the movie. And let's let's get the negative out of the way um, because there's very, very few. Um, the, the, the mother, uh, who is the daughter of Egon, uh, her and Paul Rudd have a budding romance and they're basically the avatars for the new Keymaster and Gatekeeper, which I'm totally fine with. Well, well, I'll deject a little bit from that uh, as we continue, but them being in those roles, fine, it makes perfect sense. However, you have a moment out in the desert where um, Paul Rudd is laying on a rock very reminiscently of Tully uh, on the top of the um, the Gozer Temple laying on that slab. So that was a nice little callback, probably a little too on the nose. But then what followed was so cringy. You had these two characters uh, have some really uh, cheesy dialogue between them. And it was it did elicit a laugh, but it really took away from the, the seriousness of the moment. I, I, you could have cut that completely out of the movie and it would not have changed anything. And I actually think it would benefit the movie. Um, there's also... Parts of the film where I, I thought that they hammered in the comedy a little too hard when playing it straight would have been better. But it's not so much like it, and I'm not, I don't want to start a fucking riot with Ghostbusters 2016. You either love it or you don't. Um, my criticism of 2016 is that when it's playing like a like a drama, it has some it has some good moments. When it's playing like a comedy, it's just a little too uh, zany for my taste, and thankfully, Afterlife doesn't go that route with its comedy. Specifically, there's a shot in the movie, and it did get a good laugh, but it just it, it spoke to how much movies have changed over time and played a little more comedic than I than I would have liked it to. Uh, Phoebe, who is the the granddaughter of Egon and her one friend podcast, who is a kid that has a podcast. Uh, they're they're out in the what's called Rust City. It's this you know, reclamation plant where they used to take the ore that they got from the Shandor mine, which plays a big, heavy uh, part into the story of Ghostbusters Afterlife. And they're they set up all these bottles, and Phoebe has repaired a proton pack, and she's going to do the old uh, cowboy shoot the 
uh, beer bottles off of the you know the fence kind of thing, which is fine. Uh, it wasn't played for you know like broad comedy, like her getting shot up in the air or anything. Uh, she not only hits all the bottles, she destroys them. She destroys the platform they were sitting on. Everything is destroyed. But then there's a part where you hear a noise and Phoebe goes to investigate. It cuts to a wide shot and you have Podcast who is uh, falling behind and he picks up a backpack and it's kind of heavy and he struggles with it. And it's not that he's doing it. It's that the way it's framed, you play drama in tight shots, drama and you know, conflict, horror when you want something to emphasize uh, the drama of it and then when you want to show slapstick slapstick comedy you play it in super wide because you want the body of your comedian to be completely exposed that way you're seeing you know their gyrations or gesticulations whatever whatever it is that makes the moment funny and yeah it got a laugh but I thought that was a little too broad, and I thought it would have been better to just to play it a little more straight. Um, really, the only other negative thing I can say is a big spoiler of the movie. And, and I don't even know that I feel that it's a bad thing, because it does service the movie greatly. It's more of a, mor- uh, a morality sort of angle, and that's we do get a physical manifestation of Harold Ramis in CGI form. Number one, it's incredibly well done. Um, the effects are top notch. They do make the wise decision of not having him speaking. Um, he's a little more, um, mime, but the, you get the emotion of the moments and this all played really well. Uh, I, I just feel that it's sort of exploitative in the sense of like, we're going to move into a time where, how do you how does someone die because they're they're they very easily could be exploited to a point where you know how is technology going to develop where basically after you're dead they own you they'll find someone to voice you and then they'll be able to animate your face and now I'm sure that Harold Ramis uh, would have been fine with this, and I have no doubt that his family signed off on it. It was done with the best of intentions, and they were paid, so it's all good. But the broader idea that someone can be used so far beyond their life expectancy, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm sure that when I watch the movie that aspect is probably going to be lessened because I know it's coming, but I I still don't know how I feel about it in the broad terms of just movie making, but it does serve the narrative very schmaltzy and very heartfelt, but it did, it did bring on the waterworks and I am not exaggerating that I cried the entire movie and it was cries of, of pain and and sorrow because I was really into you know the moment of the Egon's passing and this character that's been with me my entire life but I also cried out of joy because they got so much right all right my final nitpick of the movie which was uh, aside from the 
uh, Egon stuff, the, the most noticeable aspect is that they really, really hammer home the fan service in the movie. And some of it works, and some of it is just needless. Uh, down in Egon's bunker, which for, for the lack of a better word is the best way I can describe it, number one, he has a pole to slide down, which I thought, it, that's a nice callback, and I can kind of... I can kind of overlook that, but more than likely, an older man would would he, it'd be easier to have steps or a ladder of some kind. Like, come on, that's a that's a little on the nose. Like, haha, we had a a, a pole in the firehouse. Um, but specifically, one part that like really stuck out that I'm like, this was entirely there, just so. I remember, I remember this, but on his uh, wardrobe locker downstairs, there was a hanging tag, a do not disturb cleaning, like a maid service tag from the Cedric Hotel, and I thought that was a little too on the nose. Beyond that, um, it's kind of fun. Uh, I'm sure that when I go back and rewatch the movie, I'll be watching it with a different perspective to go in and try and find every little detail but some of those work in service of the movie, like for instance, uh, in in the uh, jacket or the the, uh, the pocket of his flight suit, there's a crunch bar wrapper. I thought that was a nice little touch. In the Ecto One, there was a Twinkie in the glove department. I thought that was pushing it just a little too far. Um, but uh, those things, if some some of that's going to bother some people, and some of it won't. Some people will love the movie more because of those things. Just from my personal taste, I thought that they should have picked and choose which their battles in that regard. One of the cool additions, which was a completely throwaway moment, was the eyeball ghost from. The real Ghostbusters, specifically uh, the action figure Kenner line back in you know 1986. Now uh, a little bit of history with me. Uh, I went out of my way not to see any of the trailers. Now after speaking about this uh, with people after having just watched it a brief time ago, evidently this was given away in the trailers. So uh, it was news to me, and I was glad. Otherwise, it probably would have not had the same effect. If I'd seen it in the trailer, I would have popped just out of like, ha ha, I had that toy. I still have that toy. But otherwise, it wouldn't have uh, it wouldn't have landed the way it did of me going in as blind to the movie as possible. Um, let's talk about the the main cast. Um, you have Logan Kim as podcast uh, podcast has a podcast. It's his defining characteristic. The kid has really good comedic timing. Um, I was fully expecting to sort of hate this kid, but I have to say he was uh, probably the second most well-defined character in the movie. Um, McKenna Grace as Phoebe Spangler. Perfect. Pitch perfect. There's little moments where she channels Egon so well, but it's not... It's not such a copycat thing. She just has an element about her beyond, you know, the hairstyle and the glasses. But uh, throughout the movie, uh, it's sort of shown that, shown that she is a little bit of an outcast because she's so intelligent and has trouble making friends. And her mother and her brother have uh, given her tips on, like, telling jokes to sort of make friends because 
they go to Somersville because Egon has passed away, and they have inherited this awful, dilapidated farm, which Egon had lived at. And you get to see her uh, go to summer school, and she's super awkward, but her and podcast hit it right off the bat, and they have a nice non-boyfriend-girlfriend uh, kind of relationship. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a cute relationship where maybe maybe in time it'll flourish into something like that, but it was completely played as just, I have a friend, you're my friend, and I, I, liked, I liked that it was very simple, a simple relationship. Uh, Finn Wolfhart uh, plays, and I'm blanking on his, uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor Spangler, and uh, he's he's mechanically inclined, so he, he gets the Ecto-1 up and running, and he's very unhappy that Summer uh, Summersville, I think that's the name of the town, um, it's Oklahoma, uh, but he's very unhappy that this place, it, I mean, it's like a one- one street town. There's nothing there. He has shit cell reception, and they go to this um this like an old like a old drive-in. You know this shows you how uh, behind the times this place is. And he sees this girl who ends up being, and I'm blanking on uh, the character's name, and I'll get to that as sort of a, a negative when I speak about her. Um, but you know, he has a thing for, he puts in an application, he starts working at this place and really other than him driving the car and, uh, sort of having this like relationship with the girl, he's not really uh, a key focus of the movie. I felt that they could have done a better job in expounding upon him and, you know, maybe we'll get a, an extended cut and we'll get, some more of a, you know, how the family works, the dynamic and stuff, and uh, some more with him and his budding romantic endeavors would have been nice. But uh, what what he brings to the table is that he has some really good Bill Murray-esque snarky dialogue. It's used uh, at the opportune moments, you know, to sort of break the tension of moments that don't are, are played seriously but need a little bit of that pressure relieved off them. So I, I thought that he was used very well. He just could have been uh, utilized a little more in the uh, in the narrative. Um, his counterpart, and I, I'll be honest with you, I can't remember her character name, and I can't remember the name of the actress. They do a great disservice to this character. She's the, I don't know if she's the sheriff's daughter, or uh, just if he's just a cop, but... She, she works at this, uh, this, uh, this drive-in and really like, uh, they have sort of a, will they, won't they thing, Sam and Diane kind of relationship. And they give her a little bit to do in the final battle, but really she's just kind of there. So you could almost cut her out of the movie. And aside from the fact that Finn Wolfhard is working, you know, so hard to, get her attention, really, there isn't a lot for her to do. So that's put that in the negative column. Um, Carrie Coon, who plays uh, the mother of all these characters, uh, she's utilized fairly well. She's she's very, very snarky. Uh, I felt that there were times that she should have been 
more engaged with her kids. In fact, that's one of the negatives uh, about the movie is that uh, the kids just sort of do their own thing. I know there's not a lot to do in this town, but there were points where I'm like, shouldn't podcast's parents know where he's at? Shouldn't they care? He's been gone for hours. And I did get sort of a, a latchkey kid relationship with uh, Carrie Coon's character. Um, that being said, there is a part where um, they, they catch Finn Wolfhart, uh, McKenna Grace, and Logan Kim in Ecto-1. They've got it up and running, and they've gone through the town, and they, they catch this new ghost, Muncher, who just, you know, eats metallic objects. And he's he's uh, Chekhov's ghost, because he comes back into effect um, later on in the movie. But uh, they pull him over. He doesn't have a license. He's told everybody he's 17. He's actually 15. He's failed his uh, permit test several times. So he's not really um, supposed to be driving. Gets pulled over. They put them in the, you know, the holding cell. And that's when you find out that Lucky, that's the name of the character of the of the girl. You find out that uh, her father is a police officer and um, uh, Mr. Gruberson, who is played by Paul Rudd, her, him, and uh, their mother show up to get them out. This is a point in the movie where, um, narratively, uh, basically they needed Lucky to have an in for the police department to retrieve their car and their equipment later on so she sir in service to the story she just could have been uh she she could have been given more to do and a little more character beyond i'm the pretty girl who finn wolfhart is interested in but this also causes causes another issue with the movie is that you don't there aren't like a staggering amount of consequences for them having destroyed a good deal of the of the town and I feel like if someone was driving around and they had a proton pack with that level of capability, there would be a little more of a, a fervor into like, how do you have this equipment? So maybe there should have been a, a phone call to the FBI and there should have been an intervening moment towards the end, like an aftermath kind of thing. Not with anybody getting arrested, but them like showing up and um, saying, you know, Kids shouldn't be playing with a proton pack. Proton pack is not a toy. I don't know. There could have been something there, but for narrative convenience, they're they're given a slap on the wrist, and then shit goes down. Mister Gruberson goes to a Walmart where he witnesses uh, another one of the the cutesy things in the movie that I thought uh, I thought was going I was going to dislike more than I actually did. But you have the many Stay Puft Marshmallow Men who are little devils. And they're roasting themselves on barbecues and, and getting, you know, sliced apart in blenders. It's a very interesting way to use something that was so goofy, but at the same time terrifying in the original film. Um, but it definitely plays a little more, it's probably too far into that whole Baby Yoda kind of shit. And... They didn't overdo it, and you get a nice moment with them and Logan Kim later on where they're picking apart the uh, the gunner chair that they're trying to use to take on the big bad of the film, which we'll get to. And um, they short-circuit it, but then uh, he uses the modified PKE meter, which has a stun setting now, to basically blow these uh, 
Marshmallow Man up at the end of the movie. He's just covered in marshmallow. A callback to the 84 film. I, I liked that. But um, Paul Rudd's character, Mr. Gruberson, uh, he, he gets chased by a, you know, a terror dog, which was rendered a lot better in CGI than the horrible matte lines you see in the 84 film. It's one of the, the few negative things I can say about that movie. When Lewis is being chased, he gets... Uh, there's a couple of shots where the terror dog is running and the mat lines, you know, they're like an inch thick. So it sticks out like a sore thumb. And particularly in the 4K transfer, which is beautiful uh, with that one exception. But, you know, modern technology, uh, CG has gotten to a really good point where it still has that, I realize this isn't real, but it, but it's so appealing to the eye that you kind of can forgive it. But... He becomes the key master, and Carrie Coon becomes the gatekeeper. They intertwine genitals, not on screen, it's all implied, but thus causes our plot to unfold. So Egon had abandoned the Ghostbusters. He had taken 99% of their equipment to Summersville, Oklahoma, which just so happens to be a town that has a selenium mine that was owned by the Shandor Mining Company. Uh, Evo Shandor, the mad architect who built the antenna to Gozer, has uh, been you know, a, a prophet. And he has all these in his this underground uh, temple that's under uh, a mountain where the, uh, the mine is. And you you see the uh, the image of Gozer, and it's a you know a, not a statue, but a, I guess it would be a statue, a stone carving. And then you've got the terror dogs up in the wall, and there's all these numbers of the the times that Gozer were was supposedly to come and be reborn. And 1984 is one of them, and then 2021 is is the other one. So Egon had rigged this place up where there was this portal, and every time something tried to crawl out of it, it would hit them with a neutrona blast and held them at bay. But since that Mr. Gruberson has been uh, infected by the uh, the terror dog Sentinel, which uh, uh, was the, the ghost that's held in the trap, uh, he he breaks all this and allows Gozer to, to come back into our world. Now, I haven't looked this up, so I don't know who plays Gozer in the film, and and I'm probably way off, but I'm watching this, and I'm like, that looks like Olivia Wilde. So if I'm right, that's pretty cool, but it's more than likely it's not. So Egon had built his dirt farm in the middle of nowhere, and he had uh, constructed it to be a basically a large-scale trap for Gozer. And at the beginning of the film, he had escaped from the mine, and he had gotten back and used uh, the trap as, as a way to lure the other side of Gozer in, and power failed. So it inevitably causes him to pass away. Now, throughout the film, you have had ghostly touches to show you what... Uh, Econ's motivations are 
and he he lights lights. He uses uh, the PKE meter to uh, to light up when he's around. He's been playing a, a spectral game of chess with uh, um, McKenna Grace's character since uh, it has been going on. And I thought that, that was used fairly well, and they they got to the heart of it with him leading her into this situation, and you you were able to put all the pieces together without it being just this big exposition dump, but they are new team of Ghostbusters. They, they go and they basically replicate what Egon has done. They lure Gozer there and then the power fails again. And during this, um, Gozer is able to rip the trap open and reform and, when you think all hope is lost, you hear something to the effect of, Hey, flat top. Aim for the flat top. It was a direct callback to the first movie. And then you have our three still alive Ghostbusters. Now, Ray had already shown up earlier in the film when, when Phoebe, Trevor, and Podcast were in the clink. They, they gave McKenna Grace one phone call. She uses this to call the phone number off of a YouTube video they had seen from the original film, the infamous blue lab coat, we're ready to believe you, uh, adv- advertisement. And he try- he hangs up on her. He gives us some exposition that you know they had a falling out, and they basically thought he was crazy. And he destitute their business because he took all their equipment and ran ran away. But as soon as uh, she tells him, I'm Egon Spangler's granddaughter, um, Lucky's father hits the, you know, the closes the, the connection to the phone by hitting the whatever that button's called. And at that point, you, you know, it's, it's coming. And when they show up, the, the crowd in the theater, I just erupted. It was, it was such a great moment. And, Bill Murray coming back to the series was so needed to kind of close this chapter. But I'll be honest with you, if they had not had him and it had just been, if it had just been Ray, this still would have worked. But it was so much more satisfying having all three of them together and they all get their moments. In fact, all of our guest stars they all get two scenes. Now, these scenes will come a little later on for, for the other ones. But earlier in the film, we had Annie Potts show up and she lets them... See, I guess all there was a lot of conjecture whether or not she was supposed to be uh, Carrie Coon's mother. And you find out that's not the case. We never find out who Egon had copulated with and I guess it's not entirely important but he did and he had he had kids and she's had this sense of abandonment but he came here to this place because the only way he could protect her is by saving everybody and so I'm getting a little off track but she gets another scene later on so everybody everybody from the original cast is utilized fairly evenly but this this final scene you get 
the three Ghostbusters and they, they cross the streams, but because it's only three streams, it's just not enough. And then Phoebe goes for it. And then they're able to repair the gunner chair. So Trevor is shooting into the three Ghostbusters. And then, uh, well, actually, uh, Trevor, Trevor doesn't cross the streams or hit Gozer. He uses the, the, the gunner seat Neutronal Wand to activate, to power the silos that are being used as a battery to charge the the mega trap that is buried under the dirt and we get our you know our fateful finale you get some good dialogue and funny stuff in between but that's uh that's pretty much the end of the movie now there is a after credit scene and uh or actually there's a couple of them uh number 1 you get Dana and um and Peter uh, recreating the the zapping game with uh, those uh, those cards, the memory cards, and you find out that um, that he has them marked because Dana's doing the test on him, so he's getting them all right. And then she starts shocking him. It's a good little good little moment. And Sigourney Weaver, she's the only one that only gets one scene, but her scene is utilized so well that it, she she wasn't needed, and it would have been hard to. Factor her into the movie without shoehorning her in a way that was just not necessary. Then you have Winston, and you find out Winston has been um, utilized uh, beyond being a Ghostbuster. He's gone into business, and he's created basically this uh, successful empire for himself. He sits down with Janine at the very end, and they're kind of talking about, you know, I've I'm been a successful businessman, but I'll always be a Ghostbuster. And he takes the car, Ecto-1, back to to New York. And he's been paying the rent on uh, Ray's bookstore. And he's kept the, uh, the firehouse. It's empty, but he's kept the property. So he parks the car in there. And then you get to see the camera pan down to the... <laughs> to the containment unit and there's just a light blinking on it so there's definite sequel bait uh and i'm assuming that if ghostbusters afterlife does well then we very well may be seeing another installment where probably bill murray less but Aykroyd and and um and ernie hudson coming back to tutor a new team of ghostbusters what I would like to see in this movie, if it were to be made, I definitely think McKenna Grace needs to be factored in and her and, and Finn Wolfhard. But I don't know how you can do that with them being Ghostbusters without it getting into cartoon territory. Um, it works in Afterlife because it's happening out of necessity. But if you have them on the books and these children and... They very clearly state that McKenna Grace's character is 12 and Finn Wolfhart's character is 15. So there's going to be several years before they could be utilized. Now, could you still factor them in in a peripheral kind of way, but still integral to the plot? Absolutely. But do I want to see them be full-fledged Ghostbusters? No. No, I think that I think that would be hard to suspend my disbelief. That being said, um, Paul Rudd's character, Mr. Gruberson, uh, he has a scientific background. 
He loves being a Ghostbuster. I think that would be a good thing. Also, you could throw in Dana's son. So that would be give you a an opportunity to connect her to have for a reason for her to have a cameo if they did another one. So there's there's two right there, Mr. Gruberson and Oscar Barrett. Um, I really don't really have a, a lot more to say without just rambling about how much this meant to me. And um, I guess I'll just say I'd give this movie a solid eight out of ten. It's not perfect, but if you are a diehard Ghostbusters fan, this is as close to perfect as as we were ever going to get. Uh, the first film is a lightning in the bottle film, and the fact that there are sequels to it at all is a strange and wonderful situation. And as much as I love Ghostbusters 2, it retreads so much of the the framework of that movie. And Afterlife is is not exempt from that criticism because digging up Gozer is uh, probably the the least creative thing they could have done. But it also raises the stakes to make this movie neat, the necessary for it to exist. Um, because otherwise, like, why would Egon abandon his family? And I know that was a, a point of reference that they had to do because Harold Ramis is no longer with us. But uh, everything negative I, I can ultimately overlook. And I think now that I've seen the movie and I plan on seeing it again tomorrow... I, I think I'm only going to like this movie more with subsequent viewings. Um, that's going to wrap this bonus episode up. I hope you enjoy this. And maybe uh, if this uh, catches on, I'll do some more of these uh, when a film really, really grabs me. It's just a little bonus and a thank you to the listeners of the Rant Army out there. Um, please, please check us out at JuicyKruger.com. Subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, iTunes, Stitcher, on down the line. Uh, Check out our good buddies at Wrestling Ruined on ProjectLouder.net. We've got some good stuff coming up on that. We actually just wrapped uh, a couple of days ago a bonus episode of that show as well where we each took uh, a draft position uh, from the rosters of WCW ECW and the WWF from 1995. We each had to create a supercard with our draft picks, and then the winner of that is going to go home with the 10 pounds of pod. So the other belt is on the line on that podcast. Guys, this has been fun. I really, really enjoyed uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. And um, till then, Ren Army, keep marching. <laughs>